Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, I'm so excited that our Sustainable Sundays podcast series is back, where you can expect to hear from some of our favorite eco-conscious leaders and innovators across industries, exploring topics from beauty to agriculture and everything in between. Our oceans, waves, and beaches are everything. Let's save them. Those words are taken straight from the Surfrider Foundation, which leads me to today's guest, Dr. Chad Nelson, who is the CEO at Surfrider. There he's responsible for strategic guidance regarding environmental campaigns at the local through national level, and oversees a number of environmental programs which include volunteer water quality monitoring, ocean-friendly landscaping, as well as education and outreach programs, and, and surfonomics. Yes, you heard me right. Surfonomics is a thing, and we're going to talk about it. Chad, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So great to have you. We are big fans of Surfrider and, and all the good work you guys are doing, fighting the good fight for so many of us. <laughs> uh, so let's start where it all began uh, with you personally. Let's talk about your first memory of surfing. Yes, um, I, you know, I'm lucky. I, uh, I grew up as a beach kid in Laguna Beach, which is where I am now. Um, and uh, so I grew up in the water. And uh, it's a very sort of classic tale. Um, one of my friends, a guy named Hans Hagen, his dad, Dave, uh, had a Volkswagen van. And uh, he was doing sort of private surf lessons. before. This was long before surf lessons were like a thing. And he was basically taking uh, this guy Hans's friends down to San Onofre, a classic surf longboard surf spot in Southern California. So we would go meet at the local park and hop in his pile into his VW van, amble down the coast, and you uh, would take us surfing. We we also had some of the first soft tops. You know, this was 1978, 1979, a long time ago. They were Moray Doyle soft tops. And uh, Tom Morey, the boogie board guy. And uh, I still so vividly remember catching my first wave. I was already a boogie boarder, um, but I caught my first wave, purled, went over the front of the board. You know, if the, if the nose of the board, if you lean too far forward, the nose of the board will go under the water and flip you over, like going over your handlebars on a bike. Uh, and then the second wave, I stood up, and I still remember the sensation of gliding over the water. That's awesome. So... I'm not much of a surfer. I've only surfed once. It was years ago. We were on vacation in Hanalei Bay in Kauai, and my wife and I classic took, spot. Yeah, and we took a surfing lesson, and you know, it, it was so much. I fell, but numerous times. And I'm six foot seven, <laughs> so six foot seven. Maybe I'm not built for surfing. Although Laird Hamilton's not small, so no. Um, but I, I had a blast, and you know, I, I like got it. I was like, you know what? I totally get it. And in so many ways, surfing is the perfect embodiment of mind, body, green. You know, the mm -hmm. a, the mindfulness approach, you know, you're moving your body, you're one with the environment. I'm like, wow, like surfing actually yeah. is like everything we stand for. So I'm curious, like, what does surfing mean to you? Well, I, I think you're exactly right. I A, it, it is one of the most difficult sports. Um, you know, you got to paddle out, which it's actually all paddling, very little surfing. People don't realize that, uh, you know, it's like if you're skiing, you got to climb the mountain. 
Um, and then if you're learning to ski, but the mountain was moving under you at the same time, which is what's going on with the wave. So it's super challenging. And, uh, you know, for that reason, and it's all about timing and getting in rhythm with the ocean because the ocean's doing its thing and you're trying to do a dance with it. And, um, so as a result of that, you're super focused so like other sports like rock climbing, it has this thing where you, you, it just takes you away from all that, you know, it's like it has that meditative effect of you're just in the moment. Uh, and you have to be super tuned in with what the waves are doing and the timing of them and the direction of them to put yourself in the right spot to catch the wave. Once you're surfing, everything's happening in front of you. It's mo- you're moving and you're adapting and flowing with the energy that's around you and trying to, A not let that energy knock you down (laughs) and also, you know, get speed and do tricks and turns. And so, yeah, it, um, it has all those elements. And then, you know, you're out in this unbelievable environment, you know, you see fish and you see dolphins and you see sea lions. And, uh, so you're communing with nature in a, in a really special way too. So for all of those reasons, I think it's, you know, I I haven't looked back since I started 40 plus years ago and and just love it. And I think it's hard not to have an immense respect for nature and just yes. realize like I'm just this thing, <laughs> this little thing that that you know th- the wave yeah. is the wave and I'm just <laughs> Yeah, no, it's really true. Uh the ocean is really big and powerful and does not care uh you know people talk about that with mountaineering and mountains right the mountains don't care like people die mountaineering and it's the mountains are just doing their thing and uh the ocean's the same so um in fact there's a guy named john john florence he's the world's best surfer multiple time world champion north shore hawaiian legend and he just posted on his instagram a couple days ago him just getting completely like beat up by these waves in, in Hawaii. And it, it was very, you know, he was showing that even the best guy on the planet can get humbled by the ocean. So what, what there, there are many fascinating things about you. And one of them is your, 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 <laughs> your educational background where <laughs> you ended up, I think you're going to please a lot of people, you know, our younger audience who's in, maybe in high school or, or college, uh, you ended up at UCLA studying the economics of surfing. I was like, wow, that now that's <laughs> so let's let's talk about that. Yeah, I know. Surfonomics. Uh, it always gets a laugh yeah. when I tell people they're like, well, what did you study? And I'm like, well, the economics of surfing. And they're like, really? <laughs> really? And I'm like, yeah, real. It's true. <laughs> so what is that? So, let's talk about that. Yeah. So um, there there are sort of two things associated with all kinds of recreation and tourism activities that are economically related that are important. One of them is, is spending, right? So almost every coastal community in America and, and all over the globe are tourist related, you know, business economies. So Laguna beach where I live, you know, it's a tourist town and it's run by visitors coming here to, stay at hotels, go to the beach, eat dinner, get an ice cream, all that. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of research done on the economics of tourism, tourism and recreation, um, almost none on surfers role in that. So the others and the other piece of it, and then I'll tell you about how they both match for surfers is this idea of like, uh, the value of these free resources. So 
the Appalachian Trail uh, is this incredible resource. Going out there and hiking is like f- is free, uh, but it has like immense value to us as a society. So you know, and it's antithetical to some. But how do you put value on these free resources? Uh, an ocean view uh, has value to people, as illustrated by real estate prices. Um, and so. If you value these free resources, they call them non-market resource valuation, um, we can use that to justify their preservation. So, um, so, it's, so surfing is a resource. Access to surfing is free into the ocean and the beach, but it has a value. If we lose the surf spot, the surfers in that community feel a sense of loss. So can we put an economic value on that? Because the other side, when they're justifying oil drilling or building a condo on the beach, always say jobs, 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 money. And uh, meanwhile, surfing is driving an economy and has values also that have been ignored. So I was like, okay, let's study this. It's been, whale watching has been studied. The Appalachian Trail has been studied. Oh, nobody, until I came along, decided to like to focus on surfing. So I just realized that there's this huge... Uh, sport has a multi-billion dollar sort of uh, apparel and fashion business associated with it. Nobody's looking at the impact of how these surfers are contributing to the economics of these communities. So that's that's what uh, I kind of happened into this idea. And then I looked around because the first stage in any, doing any research is like, what research has been done? And then you want to build on that. And, you know, that's how science works. So I there's a ton of research on beach going and on all these other things, but nothing on surfing. What was one of the most the surprising things you uncovered in your studies about surfonomics, if you will? Yeah, I, there was a couple things that I thought were interesting. Um, I really studied trestles, which is a pretty famous surf spot right here in uh, San, San Clemente, just south of us, which was under threat from a toll road, a project we ultimately stopped about a decade ago. But um, so I, and I surveyed about 1,500 surfers that came down there, uh, sort of asked them a series of questions. And a couple things that were sh- amazing is the, people were coming to visit this place from like two and three hours away. It was such a special place. They were willing to drive from, you know, Riverside, Santa Barbara, inland San Diego. So I was amazed at how far people were coming. They're, they're spending, you know, eight to $14 million a year in this little town uh, as a result of that. And the the folks in San Clemente had no idea. So when I went around to the city council, the chamber of commerce, the tourism board, and was like, hey, look at this, mind's blown. <laughs> and I was like, maybe, maybe actually, you know, and all they have to do to keep that going is preserve the spot. It's doing the work for them. So uh, oh. those were a couple of the uh, sort of take-homes. So you mentioned preservation earlier. Can you talk a little bit about the mission of Surfrider and how the organization got started and like some of the early days? Yeah, definitely. So the mission statement is the protection and enjoyment of the world's ocean waves and beaches for all people through a powerful activist network. So I love the mission. What we do, protection and enjoyment. So we want to protect it and use it. Uh, Where? Ocean waves and beaches, that coastal zone. Uh, for everyone, it's the commons, and through a grassroots network, which you can talk about. Um, and uh, it was formed 35 years ago uh, in Malibu at the Surfrider Hotel at Surfrider Beach, thus the name. A lot of people think it means like, it's a verb, it's actually a noun, it's the name of a place. 
Uh, and these surfers were tired of, it was two things. One, they were tired of pollution at Malibu. It's one of the most famous surf spots in the world. Sewage was being dumped into it regularly because people didn't care about the surfers. And uh, it was, people were getting sick. And second, um, the LA Olympics had just happened. And, uh, you know, here are these athletes sort of standing for, you know, the, uh, all that is good in the world, unity, you know, all these great values. And they're like, wow, like no one's looking at surfers. You know, we still had the like Spicoli burnout, burnout, dropout, stoner. Fast reputation. times at Ridgemont High. That, that's you and me. That, that, that's our age yeah, demo. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so they're like, how do we get surfers to be looked at the same way we look at these Olympic gold medalists who we revere? You know, and so that, those were like, we need to fix surfing's reputation as being actually contributing to society, not just taking advantage of it. And, and two, we are tired of surfing and poop. <laughs> so, and uh, it, it took off. And so one of the things that's so interesting about Surfrider is, you know, we, we all talk about, you know, especially in, in the age of COVID and, you know, Zoom and Skype, everyone talks about community, community, community. And we all, I think, realize now more than ever how, how important it is. And what's so cool is you've got over 200 chapters and clubs. And what is it about that model as an org that's so effective for making change i think we could all whatever you're looking to do in the world right now i think we could all learn from the model and localizing and mobilizing yeah you know i i wish i could lay claim to sort of having invented it at surfrider and i didn't the uh forefathers that got here i've been with the organization for 20 years but um and it was interesting because originally it was built out of necessity sort of they had so much success in southern california that communities all over the country and the world were like come help me solve our problems. The surfers of the world were like, this is great. And the early founders were like, we, you know, it's three guys doing this part time. We can't like help you. So they started the chapter model. It was based off the Sierra clubs model originally. And, and they were like, I don't know what to do. You get, you guys get organized. We'll help you figure it out. And the chapter model was born very organically. And, um, but you're right. So, you know, surfing is tribal, uh, communities are tribal. And so, you know, if you know your community, you know, the people, the norms, uh, you know, what makes sense in rural coast of Oregon might be different than the urban coast of Miami or, you know, the Rockaways. So having that being grounded locally and in those local communities is so, so important. And, um, there's so much value in that kind of local approach, but it has its limitations because you can't see past your boundaries. Uh, and the world, the, everything that's affecting us is often beyond those. So we built a model, and I think this is where Surfrider is somewhat unique, that we scale up and down. So we have 20 chapters in California. They work together to pass legislation statewide. We have three chapters in New York. They're working at the state level. And then we have the national level, and we scale up, and we can go to D.C. So we can kind of zoom from being a national group with a perspective that's looking that way and working on federal legislation up and down. And um, a lot of groups are at the local level doing great work. A lot of groups are at the national level doing great work. Very few can kind of zoom up and down. So you mentioned you know, being effective at the local level. And could you talk a little bit about Mark Massara's initial involvement against the pulp mill 
in Humboldt County, California, and just t- tell us what that was about and some of the you know insight there in, in terms of uh, you know how it was organized. Yeah, you know, it, it was interesting. That was in the uh, early '90s, and uh, Surfrider was still a tiny little organization, um, and you know, the surfing community in Humboldt, which is you know actually pretty vibrant even though it's a sort of Northern California cold water spot, very similar to what was happening in Malibu. We're suffering from the egregious pollution from this pulp mill. It was just dumping, you know, effluent out into the ocean. And uh, the Clean Water Act, which is one of the most important pieces of legislation in the country when it comes to protecting our oceans, you know, was being violated pretty clearly. Uh, And these guys were just getting away with murder. So, you know, Mark is a courage, fearless uh, lawyer, and you know he he had this you know this surfer's attitude, which is like, screw it, let's go take these guys on. I don't care. Oh, you can't win that. They're too big. They're this giant corporation, and uh, you know he and the others and Surfrider weren't afraid to take on a big, presumably unwinnable campaign, and um, the. Pulp mill folks clearly underestimated the surfers. Uh, and, you know, ultimately we won, which at the time was the second largest Clean Water Act lawsuit in America. And uh, that was actually what put Surfrider on the map. And it's why we have 200, that, that call for these chapters came in all over the country and the world. Um, and so, a, it put us on the map. I'd like to think we've maintained that sort of fearless reputation in terms of standing up for what's right, whether or not we think we can win. Um, and people still underestimate us all the time, and we 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 continue. To, it's come full circle. We just had a huge Supreme Court win uh, on a longstanding pollution issue in 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 Maui actually uh, this spring. Can so we're still fighting that, that same can- fight. Yeah, uh, it's a great story. So there's a wastewater treatment plant in Maui. It treats, you know, it treats our wastewater. We do this all over the world. They were injecting partially treated wastewater into the ground, and uh, which presumably, if it was soil, would naturally filter. If it was in balance, the capacity with the soil's capacity, which it wasn't. This stuff was leaking into uh, the groundwater and actually coming out into the coral reefs offshore. And uh, those nutrients from our waste were causing all kinds of algal buildup, killing the reefs, negatively impacting the environment of these reefs. And uh, so we're like, you got to fix this. You got to treat the water better, stop injecting it, and stop this problem. Um, we actually over this is uh, the campaign started locally, with our Maui chapter. Um, you know, through our advocacy, we actually did, they got them to do what they call dye tests. So they dumped a bunch of like non toxic dye into the treatment plant sure enough we saw it coming out in the coral reefs so we knew the connection was clear and uh there was a debate the the maui county didn't want to incur the cost which was going to be expensive to upgrade the facility and pass it on to their ratepayers. and so we fought this in the courts for for decades and we kept winning and they kept appealing and uh we got to the supreme court and um the the question was does the Clean Water Act apply if the pipe that's coming out isn't directly connected to the water body it's impacting? So in this case, into the ground, through the ground, out to the reefs. So there was a gap between the pipe and the ocean. 
And we're like, well, we can see the dye. And they're like, no, the clean water doesn't act doesn't apply because that water body and that pipe are two different worlds. That was the, the legal question. Had huge ramifications. It was called like the Clean Water Act case of the century because if we lost, everyone would just cut their pipe off a foot before the water and say, we're out. It doesn't apply to us. Um, we obviously don't have a great Supreme Court right now when it comes to uh, progressive issues. <laughs> they're, they're, so, apparently, apparently they're getting better from what people say. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, so we were terrified. Yeah. Because, you know, after all these years of fighting this thing, we go to the Supreme Court. You know, we're well prepared. We've got great facts. But, you know, we didn't anticipate this court. Facts. And we're like, what are facts? And if we lost, I know. Yeah, I'm like, if we had lost, you know, we would have done great damage to the Clean Water Act. Uh, so the world's eyes were upon us. And, like, fortunately, you know, these, they the, the judges took a very technical approach, which was, okay, clearly we just can't invalidate this because they could see the writing on the wall. Everyone, it would just pollution, it would render the act worthless. But, we can also tell everyone that every drop of water is connected. And so the Clean Water Act applies to every drop of water on the planet. So, you know, and they took a very technical approach and said, what's the functional equivalent of a connection, which we were happy with, meaning that groundwater is a functional equivalent of the pipe. So uh, huge, huge Clean Water Act win for Surfrider and most importantly for the waters of the yeah, United States. For the world. It's a win for the world, if you ask me. You yeah. know, it's not just yeah. it's win for everybody. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. awesome. And, and so so much has changed with the growth of the organization. And I'm curious, how have you shifted the mindset from, you know, being reactive to someone's doing harm over here versus uh, being more proactive, especially in 2020? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, the, the last two months, that's been very hard to do. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I, I took over as the, um, as the CEO of Surfrider about six years ago. And, uh, you know, one of my mantras was we've become a more sophisticated organization. We need to move from being reactive to proactive. And what I meant by that is historically, we were an organization that was very good at fighting bad projects. So this is the classic like NIMBY, uh, don't do that. Uh, that's a bad idea. And that work is still really important. And a good example is right in your backyards with, with the Williams Pipeline, which is a campaign we were very involved in, helped stop a natural gas pipeline that was going to come into the Rockaways, um, unneeded fossil fuel infrastructure and uh, harmful to the marine environment. So we're still out there stopping bad projects, and that's always going to there's always going to be people with bad ideas, and we need to, <laughs> and we need to stop those. Um, but you know that that is a really bad. If you think about it, it's a really bad strategy, You're right? Defense because all the time. Yeah, and if we stop something, we win temporarily. But every time we lose something, we lose everything permanently, right? So you win, you win, you win, you win, you win. Status quo, status quo. You lose. The environment suffers, and so you know we started thinking, okay. What, what can we do as an organization? And I can give you a couple examples. One would be, hey, let's, we need to pick up trash off the beach, of course. Uh, but that's not a solution to cleaning the problem. We need to cut off these single-use plastics at the source. So let's start banning bags and straws and uh, foam and other plastics to actually eliminate the source 
of the pollution at the beach instead of trying to clean it up after the fact, uh, you know, and let's try to proactively find ways to um, anticipate the impacts of climate change on the coast and start moving back instead of fighting, you know, the next post-Sandy reconstruction. And so th there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now. And yeah. the, the, social, <laughs> the, the social justice movement is, is definitely at the forefront and, uh, you know, it needs to be. And we're, yep. very, we're very excited about that. A lot of people, it seems like the world is excited about that. Can you talk about the intersection between uh, environmentalism and the social justice yeah. movement? Yeah, you know, and I mean, I think Surfrider is probably as guilty as, as, as many of, you know, ignoring those issues for way too long. Um, and, uh, you know, I think historically, not only has there been a separation between sort of the classic environmental organizations, which we would arguably be sort of fit into, and these sort of social justice organizations and environmental justice organizations which start to cross that line and um and so you know we are trying to keep the water clean and that's great and make sure there's access to the beach that's fine but we haven't looked past the sort of institutional and structural racism that might prevent communities from coming to the beach you know so we're only addressing sort of half the problem um and you know i there's this woman uh Leah Thomas, who wrote this amazing piece, she's been all over the media about intersectional environmentalism, you know, and um, which I can, you know, which the idea is let's actually focus on people and the planet and how they interact. There's a simple just definition of it, but she's like, hey, look, you know, people of color and underserved communities are disproportionately impacted by pollution issues, by climate change, by all these things. And so, you know, we should be caring about that just as much as we are about cleaning the water. And, you know, Flint, Michigan is a good example of that. And she's like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a black woman of color who cares about the climate because that's an existential crisis to the health of humanity. Why aren't you as like a 50 year old white dude concerned about racial justice? Cause it's an existential threat to the health of our society. And I'm like, that's a great point. You know, why, why not? Why haven't we been? And I think, you know, I'm sure you, like me, is generally interested in, you know, social equity and racial equity. But we were also, I, I certainly speak for myself, wasn't doing enough to be proactively supporting those causes. I was out marching for climate. I should be marching for justice. Uh, and, I, and I think she's right. And, um, and so it's interesting, you know, it's daunting. Do we need to solve everything simultaneously? And that's been kind of one of the arguments. I, climate's big enough. And uh you know, I think we've crossed a, a line where that's not the case anymore. And, you know, frankly, you know, I'm in the movement building business and uh, I want to build a giant movement because I know when the movement gets big enough, we win. And uh, so I'm like, all right, well, let's start intersecting these issues and build a bigger movement and solve all these things together as much as we can. And, you know, and do that humbly because there's a lot of people out there on the front lines doing great work that, uh, we've been ignoring and it's time to change that. So I, I am like, you know, learning a ton, I'm making mistakes. Uh, I, I, I am trying to, you know, approach this with some humility and, and really try to find a way that my organization and the issues we're working on can start being part of that larger 
uh, solution. You know, and that means reaching out to environmental justice groups in the communities we work in and looking for common ground and supporting those efforts and, you know, elevating the voices of uh, people of color inside our organization. So, um, and, and making sure that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to address as many of those issues as we can. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Flint, Michigan. I had uh, a dear friend of mine is the activist Hill Harper, who we had on this podcast, and he's done a lot of work in, in Flint, and he brought up Flint, and he said, you know, as we think about environmental acti- activism, it's six years later, and, and clean water in Flint is still a problem. And he's like, this, yeah. is, this is the intersection for so many of us, and we just can't, can't forget about that. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up Flint and, and, you know, we need to talk Flint, Flint, Flint still, you know, still yeah, a problem. And, and, and there's Flint's all over, right? Yes. I mean, there are, um, you know, there are communities in Long Beach, California that have been suffering from the impacts of diesel and, and air quality from the port of Long Beach for decades and activists fighting a heroic fight to, to do that work. And, you know, we haven't been part of that and we, should be you know so i think those are the kind of issues that we need to really figure out how to how to be a better ally and and support within the work we're doing there's a lot of overlap without you know already that we can uh try to help figure out how to solve or or participate in and and be part of the solution so you know again in this in this covid world where you know, so many of us have, don't live near the ocean and, and we dream of traveling again to the ocean. You know, <laughs> we're all saying, you know, to our, our loved ones, our spouses, our kids is, you know, when we can when we're travel again, we're going to go here or there and so forth. And, you know, I don't think I'm alone in, in saying like, you can't wait to, to, to get to an ocean. And you have this, yeah. uh, this great quote on, uh, on the Surfrider site, our oceans, waves and beaches are everything. Let's save them really short yeah. sweet powerful so <laughs> you know we all want to get there when we're out of this thing uh or or not I mean, we may just go anyway uh, you know what what's <laughs> happening with regards to you know our oceans and beaches that that most people are unaware of you know what what we can what what can we all do to help make them you know a, a better a better place and ultimately save those that are at risk yeah i mean um you know, it is, the ocean is everything. There's a great Arthur C. Clarke, this sort of famous science fiction writer quote that's like how inappropriate that we call this planet Earth when it's so clearly planet ocean. <laughs> you know, it's, it's 70%. There's a reason why it looks blue when you see it from space because uh, it's 70% ocean, 30% land. Um, you know, and that ocean provides, it is everything. I mean, every other breath we breathe comes from the ocean. It regulates. It's a it's a habitable planet because the ocean's regulating the temperature. Uh, you know, it's providing sort of a third of the protein the planet eats. So it it really is the uh, fundamental to the health of our like human you know existence. Um, and you know, it's really it's interesting. It's really suffering a death by a thousand cuts. Uh, so it's really hard to pick one thing. But I think you know sort of two or three of the big ones that we all can have an impact on are, you know, um, climate change is having massive impacts on our oceans. The oceans have absorbed uh, 90% of the heat and 30% of the carbon. Um, So they're buffering and we're already seeing what they're calling marine heat waves. So that's starting to manifest itself back. So uh, 
supporting climate change legislation, looking at your own carbon footprint, uh, riding your bike instead of driving your car and all of those things can make a huge difference. Um, plastic pollution, you know, the oceans we've learned in the last decade are absolutely littered in plastic. There's a stat that by, uh, 2050, there'll be more plastic than fish in the ocean, um, which is horrifying. And so, um, you know, we're trying to, change that at a policy level but all of us can also get rid of all those single-use plastics um the you know whether it's the coffee cup the straw the single-use the the water bottle you use reusables um and we've seen a huge setback uh, on that issue because of covid understandably in the beginning it was all about surfaces and everyone was terrified and so you know the grocery store was the scariest place to go and um We've learned that surfaces, there you go with your reusable mug. I like it. I got, my, Ye- I got my Yeti. I'm on brand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we're trying now to, uh, there's a increasingly evidence that surfaces aren't the problem. We can clean our reusables and, yeah. and be safe. So we're trying to get people back off plastics. Um, and then third is really, um, you know, we're also taking too much out of the ocean from like a seafood standpoint. And so, you know, really focusing on sustainable seafood, it's not a central issue to what Surfrider does, but there are a lot of groups out there working on that. And there's like Monterey Bay seafood guides and trying to really, um, make sure that we're, you know, leaving enough wildlife in the ocean to keep that ecosystem safe and healthy. So in a, in a time where there's, uh, lot to be concerned about and, lo- and lots yeah. of uh, and lots of uncertainty <laughs> i'm curious you know what worries you and then uh, also what what excites you yeah you know i think the thing that worries me the most is that uh i felt like there was an incredible amount of momentum towards addressing climate change um with those like youth marches in the fall, it was the largest single day of like protest and activity on the history of the planet. One in every thousand humans on that planet like actually participated in a march. Um, and so, you know, we're overdue, long overdue in addressing climate change. And, and that is the, you know, 600 pound gorilla in the room. And it's a race against the clock. Uh, because the more we pump up carbon, we pump into the atmosphere, uh, you know, the harder it's going to be to change things. And you hear these stats about, you know, irreparable harm happening in the next decade. So we're losing time as we deal with COVID and, and this is no longer part of the national agenda. You know, it's not a referendum on climate change for the election in November. Now it's a referendum on COVID. Um, on the flip side, I think, you know, I'm very, one of the things I'm optimistic about is that we're learning that um, society matters, uh, science matters, experts matter. We need to think about the collective benefit of the whole to solve, and we need to think globally to solve these problems. So if the the same things we need to solve COVID, you know, which we're not doing a great job here in the States, but others are hopefully, uh, or we will in the future, are the same things we need to do to address climate change. So I'm hoping out of this, when we kind of, you know, hopefully get into a post-COVID world, uh, the the lessons we've learned and the general sentiment of the public is such that we're like, all right, now we have the tools to tackle climate change. So you, you mentioned earlier you're in the movement building business. And, you know, there, we have a smart audience of people listening and, you know, they're passionate, they're mission driven and, 
you know, whether it's a, a movement in their family, a movement in their community, I'm sure a lot of people are saying like, hey, you know, I, I want to I want to help make change, whether it's just as small yeah. as a family unit or as or a community or as big as, you know, something on the, on the regional level or national level. A any advice for people who, you know, want to want to make change, want to start, you know, there's a lot of people upset right now about numerous things and, and, and want to make, yeah, yeah. make a difference. They don't want to be on the sidelines. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, first of all, uh, I think that it's important for everyone to realize that every single one of us has like the power within us to be an agent of change. We, we have something that's sort of we call the power of one, which is this idea that there are people out there, our champions who make change as a person. So we all have that agency to go out and make change. And that could be, you can vote with your wallet, with your consumer choices, uh, you can hop on the phone and start calling your federal representatives. You can get involved locally. Um, so I think that's, you know, and, and for us at Surfrider, you know, we're, we're doing that as a collective. So the idea is we have these volunteer chapters like in New York City and 80 of them around the country and 100 of these high school clubs doing the same thing. And we're helping people uh, put that agency to work. Uh, on our issues. So we have toolkits and science and experts and campaigns. So we're just adding organizational structure and collecting a bunch of those individuals and pointing them in the same direction on issues. And it also makes it a lot of fun because it's a, you know, I know for, for us, the issues we're tackling are serious, but we can have fun doing them together. So, you know, uh, get off the sidelines, learn about issues, take that step to like, get active and make a phone call, attend a meeting, get involved with a Surfrider chapter in your community or another community-based organization. You know, we're doing it all virtually now like everybody is. And uh, I find, I think people find it really rewarding. Uh, it's fun. You meet like-minded people. And then when you actually affect change, it's an incredibly empowering experience. You're like, all right, we can do this. We just, you know, we help ban single-use plastic bags in New York City. We stopped the Williams pipeline, um, you know, and, and Surfrider is making tangible change. You know, I think <clears throat> since 2007, we've passed over 150 laws and policies to reduce single-use plastics at the source around the United States. Um, you know, so every one of those is another step at reducing that amount of plastic showing up in our oceans. So it works. It, you can actually make a difference. So in closing, we ha we have a mutual affection for a Margaret Mead quote, never doubt. <laughs> I, I love when I saw this about you. I was like, oh, I, lo I love this guy already. <laughs> we <laughs> love this quote. Uh, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Love that quote. I I'm curious, anything you'd like to add to that quote? <laughs> No other than it, it, it continues to be proven true day in and day out. And I think we're witnessing some of that right now with this uh, movement for racial and social justice. I mean, it is a, it's a people's movement and it's being driven by uh, the youth and uh, it just shows you uh, and, you know, an unbelievable array of uh, things have already occurred in response to that. And that, that makes me hopeful that we're going to tackle some long overdue issues. And I think it's just another example, grassroots organizing and movements are the, the way to create change. So it's the uh, end of June, uh, 2020, you know, what a year from now, you know, what, 
what do you want to be talking about? What's it, what, what, what's the, what do you want as an organization, as a leader, uh, in the environmental movement, where do you want the conversation to be? Um, yeah, being, 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 well, the, uh, being the optimist and, and, and I, pragmatist I, that you are, you, you can't be in this business without <laughs> an optimist or you'd go crazy. Uh, but you know, I mean, I, I actually, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, we're going to have a, a different, more uh, environmentally focused administration um, that is, you know, getting serious about tackling. Hopefully, we'll be, it'll be sort of post-COVID. It'll be the first summer without COVID. We can go to see some music, live music again. And, uh, and we'll be tackling some of these issues seriously, whether it's plastic pollution, climate change, um, these environmental issues, and hopefully doing it in a whole new way. I, uh, uh, you know, Surfrider is building out like a, you know, a multi-year plan to deal with them, some of these social and racial justice issues. And I, I hope this isn't a trend of the minute. And I hope uh, a year from now we're tackling these issues with, with new people and new partners in a, in a more constructive way. I think that would be... Um, really exciting and i do think we're on the cusp of a major cultural shift uh here in america and probably the world and uh hopefully this all, all this bad stuff that's happening is kind of a last gasp of some uh outdated thinking and we can get to a new place i love it we'll close there amen to that chad right. thank you so <laughs> much for all that you do and, and and surf rider uh thank you thank you we need you guys more than ever thank you Hey, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and chat with you. It was a lot of fun. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.